Welcome to the Off Street Podcast featuring Adam Reiner and Sean Dan. Off Street contains general information that is not suitable for everyone and contains certain forward-looking statements of future possibilities that due to known and unknown risks and other uncertainties and factors may differ materially from actual results. As such, there is no guarantee that any views and opinions expressed herein will come to pass. Off Street is presented for informational purposes and nothing contained herein should be construed as a solicitation to buy or sell any security or as an offer to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. Additionally, this communication contains information derived from third-party sources. Although we believe these sources to be reliable, we make no representations as to their accuracy or completeness. Adam and Sean are employees of Marshall Financial Group, Inc., a registered investment advisor. For additional information about the firm, including its services and fees, send for the firm's disclosure brochure or visit advisorinfo.sec.gov. All right, Sean, it is Friday, May 19th, 3.40 in the afternoon. It is not our normal recording date. It is a Friday instead of a Tuesday. This feels weird. It's a little weird, but I will be away next week visiting family. So we are recording a a few days early. You'll be in the happiest place on earth, right? I may be. So I heard (laughs) we might be going Wednesday to Disney. There you go. So you'd be in the happiest place on earth. Are you excited? The kids are very excited. (laughs) Yeah. It seems like the parent side of things is not as fun as the little kid side of things at Disney. It'll be good memories. Yeah, and also, it'll be a good real-time economic indicator. Primary research right there. You can see if it feels recessionary or not. I have a feeling it's not going to feel recessionary. Judging by trying to book some of the events online, economy is strong. (laughs) Yeah, it is not your, your grandfather's Disney. The prices are astronomical, last I checked. Yeah, but it'll be fun. So we were out of the office for a little bit this morning, Sean. And you had pulled up your phone and showed me the headline of debt ceiling talks breaking down. I guess good timing. We put out our wealth IQ yesterday. That was very debt ceiling heavy. We knew, I mean, we knew it was going to be easy, right? We hoped it was going to be easy. We were led to believe it might be easy, that we might be celebrating a, a, an agreement right now. It was not to be. Yeah, it feels like we're tracking very similarly to the 2011 debt ceiling drama. But there was one chart in that Wealth IQ yesterday. There was at least one question about, and it shows the growth of the federal debt um, since going back to 1966, where between 1966 and 1999, the federal debt grew at a rate of 9.2%. But the, the slope looks very minimal compared to 2000 and later where it actually had a lower growth rate at 7.7%, but the line really shoots up. Yeah. It goes a bit bit parabolic, it looks like. Um, Yes, we are. If you're questioning it, yes, we're sure of the math. It really is very much the effects of compounding in that chart. And I can only imagine we're talking the 30 trillions right now. It's not that big of a growth rate and you're in the hundreds of trillions and beyond. So it looks like today it was reported that Republicans, quote, stormed out of the meeting. McCarthy says things are on pause. We've got to get movement by the White House. We don't have any movement. Another Republican negotiator said, look, they're just being unreasonable. Um, We know Biden is out of the country. He's in Japan right now. Still have, what, 12 days, 10, 12 days to that X date. So I guess we're we're still in this holding pattern. This We called it annoying the other day, this annoying holding pattern. Yes, that that was my reaction when you pulled out your phone and showed me the, the headline. What was it, early afternoon, later this morning? When that broke, that news broke. But just thinking about it solely as an investor, 
both parties have acknowledged the need to raise the debt ceiling, the need to avoid default, come to some compromise. Yesterday, we hit our highest level on the S&P since August of last year. We were up again this morning, trading off that headline yesterday of the path to a deal was in place. Maybe we could vote on something next week. And then it just seems to have fallen apart. Yeah, classic one step forward, two step back. And you you talked about the the market slid this morning. It fell it fell pretty steeply, maybe giving back some of the optimism that we saw yesterday. But I think you have some numbers. What is it? What is the number that we're kind of I guess arguing over at this point? It's pretty small, right? Well, there's no nothing officially has come out. There were some headlines that were published at the end of of April when Republicans proposed their budget. And in there, I think it's about work requirements, which that's been reported with these debt ceiling negotiations. And then some spending cuts, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of, of $30 billion over a period of time. I think they, they want to cap growth of discretionary spending, which makes sense. We, we talk about that some in, in the Wealth IQ as well. Can't really cut mandatory spending. You need to do it from the discretionary side. But just thinking about $30 billion over the budget, which last year we spent about $6.2 trillion, is a relatively small number. It's less than half a percent. If you're thinking about it as $100, it would be the equivalent of $0.48. Cents. Crazy. Imagine arguing over $0.48 cents at the checkout counter. Like that's a, that's a rounding error. You, you, no one cares. And not to mention the, the fact that we've been talking about this for so long, which is arguably a manufactured crisis. This didn't need to happen. All the time and money and energy that have been put towards these negotiations, we're talking millions, if not billions in taxpayer dollars that have been lost. And that's time that can't be put towards other more pressing items. So it's just, it's it's brutal. It's terrible. And even looking at it from an investor point of view, the market was up this morning before the news broke. We hit a market cap somewhere 36.6 trillion. After the news broke, we probably lost somewhere around 240 billion. Yeah. So if we're if we're arguing over thirty billion in, in the budget and then in real time today evaporated two hundred fifty billion of shareholder value, those numbers don't tie out. So obviously there's there's no certainties, but we still have twelve days left. We knew Biden was out of the country. Maybe Biden comes back in the country next week. We we see some voting, you think? Do you you wanna make any guesses there? My guess would be they still they still reach an agreement. I don't know they have too much choice. I think in twenty eleven talks broke down at some point too, then they came back together and got it figured out. Um, and we passed on the, lat, the the X date, the day we were going to breach the ceiling in 2011. Feels like this is going to happen again, this go around. As an investor, I I just can't help but think both parties got the sound bites that they wanted. Republicans can show that they're serious about the deficit and reining that in. Democrats can show that they're serious about maintaining some of those social programs. And at this point, let's just go. Let's just move forward and eliminate this headline risk. Yeah, no, and that's a great point with headline risk. There's always headline risk in markets. It's been very prevalent the past two years, especially, I'd say, 2022, pretty dominated by inflation. Now it's more recession, debt ceiling talks. There's always going to be scary headlines, right? And I know know you mentioned a few minutes ago, S&P had a nine-month high yesterday in the midst of the maybe the peak stress of these talks. The NASDAQ hit a one-year high yesterday. Who would have thought? How, how should an investor approach these headlines when they're making investment decisions? Because there's, like, there's always going to be scary headlines. It's been 18 straight months of scary headlines at this point. I think most people agree the basics of investing are you try to buy low and sell high. 
but it can be very hard to do in real time when you see all these headlines. I pulled up some numbers from the Investment Company Institute, ICI, which tracks fund flows for mutual funds and ETFs. These fund flows are weekly, and it shows people have generally done the opposite. In 2020, when headlines were really scary, investors pulled money out of stocks. In 2021, when headlines were better, they put money in. Last year, when there was volatility again, they took money out. It's, a, it's, it's one of those classic investing tropes. And so you can look at the correlation between allocation to cash and then forward returns off of that. Historically, there's been a pretty tight correlation of when investors are pretty concentrated in cash. Forward returns on equities are usually pretty good and vice versa. So it's just, it's it's a natural human tendency. There's a million behavioral finance books about it, but just anything you can do to resist those headlines, I think is is super important. Yeah, we pulled some headlines from prior market volatility. So I'll read some of them off to you, Sean. 2008, 2009, the financial crisis. October 7th, 2008, headline, the depression of 2009, question mark. February 27th, 2009, market insider, recession, the only thing roaring in March. March 4th, 2009, which was pretty close to the low. Believe that was March 6th or March 9th, 2009, one of those two dates. Is this a depression? For markets, it may not matter. And if you just look at one year later, after those headlines, stocks were up 5.9%, 50.3%, and 56.9%, respectively. Yeah. And we can do the same thing in 2020. It's, I mean, it's a tales all this time. And we talked about the other day, that Mich University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey talked about consumers are becoming negative because they're being hit over the head every day with recession headlines. I mean, these same firms that are all coming out and predicting a recession, based on where PEs are, how the markets performed, I would be surprised if many of them were actually positioned for a recession investing-wise. And it's uh, very classic in investing. I'd say even beyond investing, you sound smart when you're negative. When you're the person who is negative or brings up risks that maybe other people don't see, whether they're valid risks or not, you sound smart. Like think of maybe the biggest investing movie of all time, The Big Short. Michael Burry is so celebrated because he was the only one who was negative going into the crash of the housing bubble. It doesn't matter if he's been right the past 10 years. He's made a lot of calls the past 10 years very publicly on Twitter, some right, some wrong. But when you're a bear, especially on Wall Street, people kind of want to listen to you. You you scratch that itch. A very emotional response. Yeah. Right? People it, are it, generally loss averse and investing can be scary. That headline risk is always going to be there, but I think it just goes to show headlines were very negative today. Obviously, we sold down on it, but headlines have been negative the past nine months and the S&P is at its highest point in the past nine months. So I, on some level, you can't ignore them completely. You should be informed. But if you trade just based on headlines, you're probably not going to do as well as you could do in the long term. I think when you're an investor, you have a longer term horizon than a trader. And you have to recognize when you go into it, there's going to be cyclicality that comes up along the way. Yeah, you don't have to. And that's kind of the beauty of being a long-term investor. You don't have to nail every trade. You don't have to nail every up and down. 2022 is a bad year. But if you can hold for the next 50 years, it, it likely will come out in the wash over 50 years. Anytime the market seems scary, I know we posted a chart of the S&P 500 with a log scale in the most recent Wealth IQ. Anytime you get scared, I would suggest pull up the S&P 500 over as long as a time horizon that you can look at, 50, 100 years. The, the huge drawdowns that you see 
don't look as scary when you zoom out. And that's generally how it is. Yeah. Even looking at this year, few people probably would have thought we would be in, in this position right now. Oh, no one would have. Yeah. You, but, we've, we've done the exercise before. You pull out the economist forecast at the beginning or the end of the year. If you ask someone, where are we going to be May 19th? Most people would say flat to negative. There's, right? and, <laughs> there's probably the few strategists at the top that are generally always bullish, the perma bulls that would have guessed a higher number. There would have been the middle and then there would have been like the perma bears. Yeah. What we've seen. So, but even last October, there were scary headlines and the market's up 16, 17% since yeah, that yeah. time. There, those are some dark days. I remember just you turn on Bloomberg, it's everything's flashing red and everyone's in a somber mood. And you're like, oh man, do we have another yeah. leg lower? Like what's our way out of this? Last and year wasn't fun for anyone. <laughs> no, there were a lot of points like that. I remember June, August, October stand out as like, there's some there's some tough days in there, but yeah. again, if you didn't panic, if you didn't sell in those moments, you, you've been rewarded if you, if you stuck it out. Okay. Headline risk we also often focus on the negative of it, not reacting to negative headlines. It can be the other way too, of not overreacting to like overly positive headlines. Like unless something has really changed and you need to change the way you're investing or your investment plan, even though things seem really really great, like 2021, perfect example of that. Like not a reason to get more bullish. It's really just a reason to stay disciplined. Maybe it's not ignore or try and stomach the negative headlines. It's just keep a level head. You never get too high, never get too low in investing. I'm sure there's a million Warren Buffett quotes we could pull out right now. It'd be perfect for that. But yeah. you guys can look those up yourselves. <laughs> stay rational, not emotional. So speaking of irrational investors and traders versus investors, Robinhood the first mover in the no commission trading space has announced 24 hour trading on certain securities. So from Sunday at 8 PM Eastern to Friday at 8 PM Eastern, you will have 24 hour trading ability in 43 of the most active ETFs and individual stocks on Robinhood's platform. And so those stocks include Tesla, Amazon, Apple, just name a few. Robinhood head Vlad Tenev was asked this week, why are you doing this? And he said, this will, quote, allow our customers to better manage the risk. Now, I have a couple of feelings about that. I want to I want to hear I don't know. what you think of that <laughs> statement. I think this one is a really interesting story. And two, I don't think it's going to help people manage risk. I don't think that's why they're doing it. I think they're doing it because their revenue peaked at the end of 21. And they need to find a way to generate more revenue. There, I mean, there's no way. In what world is this going to help people better manage their risk? If, if anything, it's just going to stoke volatility. We know in thinner markets that pricing is much tougher. You usually, it's, it's usually hard to find good pricing depending on what side of the trade you're on. So if you only have the most active traders trying to trade at 2 a.m. on a Tuesday, it's going to do the opposite. I would think. Did you say you can trade over the weekend? No, it says it'll start Sunday at 8 p.m. And then you can trade until Friday until Friday at 8 p.m. So even someone trading Tuesday morning, 2 a.m., who needs liquidity that bad at 2 o'clock in the morning? Well, the the <laughs> the people of Reddit were all over this when this came <laughs> out. Some of the some of the snippets of of people debating this move couple of the big ones someone said quote gamblers are going to gamble another one said i can save gas from driving to the casino i think that plays into your tuesday 2 oh, yeah. like let's play and instead of going to the casino to play slots let's you know day trade apple and then the final one is why would anyone want this 
So I, I think it's unfortunate because I think the people who are going to try and use this are the exact people who probably shouldn't be trading at, at, at a Tuesday at 2 a.m., like you said. And probably. the people who are probably going to profit are if there's hedge funds or firms that have sophisticated strategies that can take advantage of market mispricing or kind of corner someone if they really need cash for whatever reason at that time of night, and they just give them a terrible price, but they're the only bidder in town. I imagine there will be very wide bid-ask spreads. Someone looking to sell is probably going to have to do so at a discount, and someone looking to buy is going to have to do it at a premium. And then whoever purchased it from them, especially if they put it in a market order instead of like sending some type of oh, yeah. order, like someone is going to make a lot of money off of this. I don't know if it's going to be Robinhood or, like you said, hedge fund that's just looking for mispricing. Not to speculate too much on Robinhood, it, it probably not a great sign that they're reaching like this and that they're the, really the only broker. I know, I think they said interactive brokers, which I, I'm pretty sure is mostly known for day trading. It's yes. a pretty popular day trading platform. It feels like a reach, like Robinhood, like you said, it's reaching for more revenue in any way that they can. Their but, market cap has fallen quite a bit. Oh, that's an understatement. <laughs> Something like 88% since they, they went public. Yeah. Probably going to be more chaos. We'll wait to see the first major headline from this. I'm sure something will come across one day where someone paid $10,000 for a share of Apple or something. <laughs> but it's, it's certainly an interesting story. Shall we do some uncorrelated, Sean? Let's do it. I think this is our best set of uncorrelated stories to date. I've Oh, yeah? I have a lot of thoughts here. No, I, lo I love both of these stories. All right. The first one is from Philadelphia, and there is a restaurant called the Drury Beer Garden, DBG, and they are re reopening with a revamped menu. And one of these menu items is a $700 burger, and it is made with Japanese ribeye Wagyu beef, Irish cheddar cheese, Italian black truffle, caviar, lobster meat, and a brioche bun topped with a gold leaf. And fries drizzled, drizzled with honey. It's a gimmicky burger. The second you put gold flake on something, it's over. Like yes. that's just that's so it's so tacky. It's so ridiculous. If anything, it like it makes it look less appetizing. Why would I want to eat metal? Maybe a spin zone here. They don't plan to sell a single of these burgers. This was a marketing ploy, right? They're reopening. They wanted to find a way to get into NBC, ABC, Philadelphia, all these news sources because they finished the article by saying, "But if you're not interested in this burger," They also sell $3 smash burgers. So like yeah. they're probably, you're probably not going there expecting to pay $700. I think this is just a marketing ploy, but I guess if that is the plan, good on them for free advertising. Yeah. The only people who are likely to order it are people who just want to buy it, post it to social media. What's that? Clout? Is that, is that what you guys call it when you post Clout? things? Yeah. Things? Nailed there it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a little bit about it. Like the whole Salt Bay. Remember the Salt Bay trend? Oh, yeah. Jump the shark. And now he's opened up a steak restaurant where he's puts gold flake on everything. And it looks ridiculous. But yeah. also, like I, I'm not a, I don't know a ton about this sort of stuff. I know a little bit about the whole like Japanese Wagyu A5 beef situation. But every time I see that, it's always like a perfect like a little eight ounce steak and you have to sear it just the right way, medium rare. I would think chopping up and putting in a patty would kind of degrade it too. Like it wouldn't be as good. I, like everything about it just feels kind of uncomfortable. Not not for yeah. me. It feels very gimmicky. I can't imagine it tastes great. Maybe some of the components alone taste are good, but together, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. No, it's kind of like the, the Barkley Prime cheesesteak that goes for like $140. 
Well, right, I was going to say, I, I think that's a case of someone doing it right. Yes, it's Wagyu beef, Wagyu beef or guac, onions, truffle cheese, but it comes with like a half a bottle of champagne. Yeah, so, and it's a fine dining restaurant. Maybe yes. the nicest, maybe the nicest steakhouse in Philadelphia. And there's a book I read. It was it was marketing focused. Um, it's called Contagious by Jonah Berger, and he starts off the book by talking about how Barclay Prime kind of nailed it at every level with the marketing and how it plays into the the fabric of the city, the cheesesteak. It's expensive, but they have the rep and the clout of their fine dining establishment. So you probably know it's going to be well done, well made by a good chef. And it's $140, not $700, which is still obviously a ton for a cheesesteak. But like you said, it comes with half a bottle of champagne. There's more to it than just the cheesesteak. So maybe a little tacky, but not $700 burger at an outdoor beer garden tacky. Are you a, a Starbucks fan, Sean? Yes and no. Like I'll I'll go every once in a while. I'm not a daily person. I know some people it's a, a daily activity. Do you get hot drinks or cold drinks? A mix. A mix. A mix? Do you have? I, I'd say my go-to cold drink: peach green tea lemonade. Okay, pretty great. But that comes with ice. I'm more of a an iced coffee fan. Iced coffee. coffee. Do you go straight yes. or anything in it? Just just straight coffee. We don't we don't need to put cream in. Old fashioned. Not not here to drink milk. Here drink coffee. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but there, apparently there are a lot of people like us in this article that we'll get to in a second. 75% of Starbucks sales come from iced beverages. That's shocking. That's, which was that's shocking to me. Easily, easily the craziest stat I've heard all day. If you asked me, I would have guessed 20, 25% max. Yeah, big number. But because of that, they are changing their ice cubes. They are moving to a, a nugget ice or a, a pellet ice, which are smaller than the chain's current cubes. And apparently there has been mixed reactions on, on social media about the, the ice change. It feels like a very important decision by Starbucks. Yeah, no, that, that's what I, I was going to say here is for as little of a thing as ice, this is a huge decision. People, people are serious about their ice across i'd say especially fast food chains like chick-fil-a as much as it's the, the chicken sandwich there i know people that are obsessed with the ice they want to go to chick-fil-a just to get the chick-fil-a ice so ice Chick -fil -A can, has good ice i, I will say it's great ice i think and i think in the article it said that what starbucks is moving to is closer to a chick-fil-a ice right yes the pellet, the, the pellet the, ice the pellet ice they they note it is a chewier or flakier ice which that therein lies the problem of people is it going to melt quicker? Is it going Which to water a, down my drink? A good question. The company addressed it and said, these nuggets do not melt any faster. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think people are going to get mad about this. Like anytime you have a product or a consumer brand where people are used to things in exact certain way, I, I feel like anytime you tweak, that's that's a huge decision. And for I think anytime 75... anything's changed, people don't like it. Even when you're using, used to using an app and they change the interface of the app, it's annoying. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about like the iPhone. Maybe an iPhone's improved a little bit on the tech side. The, the visual is the same, but the layout of apps and all that stuff, pretty much the exact same for the past five, seven, ten generations of that phone. Uh, my question would be, is there a big cost savings or something? Like why, why change up the ice? Don't fix it if it's not broken. Do you say the new ice machines will use less water? So maybe some some marginal savings. Uh, that's I mean it. I I wonder how much time and effort went into this. I can't imagine this was a light decision to come. Probably to. a lot of focus groups. Oh yeah, 
but there there will be drama. I'll say it right now. I'm very confident there will be drama when this is rolled out. People will be mad. Yes, people will say, give me back my old ice. I'm, I'm, going fire, Mc, but... I'm going to McDonald's for my iced coffee because they have the normal cubes, not this pellet yeah, ice. I, I think that's the one thing is maybe Starbucks is just saying, we know our customers are so loyal. They're not going to Dunkin' or McDonald's or whatever if they don't like the ice. Big decisions. Any any parting thoughts, Sean? Juan, hope you have a nice trip to Disney. Yeah, excited, ex- excited to hear, hear how it goes. Good be able to report back, like we said, on the, the Florida economy sure it's bustling down there but um i don't know i just i hope next time we meet to talk for the podcast we have a a debt deal in place yes i'm i hope i'm not messaging you next week because the market is down on volatility that it seems like we're not going to reach an agreement on time does does today shake your confidence at all are you still i know the whole kind of thing is when we've, we've been hopeful we think it's probably going to happen does this reset your expectations? Not really. It still feels very similar to 2011 to me mm-hmm. at this point, which the deal didn't come together till the very last minute. It came together at the 11th hour in 2011 as well. And I still believe that's going to happen this time as well. There's just the, the risk reward is just so asymmetric on it that I don't believe a rational person could say it's in taxpayers' interest, the economy's best interest or really anyone's best interest to go into a default for a period of time. Fingers crossed on that front. Fingers you crossed. Have any, hey, you have anything? Yeah, there was, a, I call it a good headline that came across today. It kind of got lost in the debt ceiling stuff. And Powell and Bernanke were doing a, a joint speaking engagement. I think for the first time from his lips, him being Powell, the market got its first glimpse at what might happen in June at the next Fed meeting. when he said, Given how far we've come, we can afford to look at the data and the evolving outlook and make careful assessments. So people are reading that as the potential for a pause in June. Feels like it. Definitely feels like it. So just because they pause in June doesn't mean they can't go again at some point if they have to in the future. Just good news on the Fed front, waiting on the good news on the government side. It was still a good week for the market, though. Oh, great week for the market. Even with this headline. We're up something in the neighborhood of five day, five day return, one point seven percent. It's a good week's work. Yeah, I'll take I'll take that every week if we could get it. Hopefully, it happens next week too. Let's keep it rolling. All right, have a good week. You too. See you.